In Flanders' fields the poppies blow, Between the crosses, row on row, That mark our place, and in the sky The larks still bravely singing fly, Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago We lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, Loved and were loved, and now we lie In Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. George, and you're listening to Uncle Steve I Maiden Zone. Yeah! Woo! As we go somewhere back in time with my dad, Andrew. Come on, Uncle Steve. The show's about to start. Welcome to episode 107 of Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, and what a momentous Iron Maiden Zone we have here today. We are doing Somewhere Back in Time with my good friend, Andrew, who lives in or near Melbourne, Australia. Andrew, how are you, sir? I'm all right, Steve. How are you doing? Doing awesome. Doing awesome. It's so good to have you back. Good to be back. Yeah, we, we, we were just discussing this, and we basically, the last episode came out August 31, mm-hmm. and as we sit and record this, it's November 1. 
Yes. <laughs> well, for some of us. Yeah, for it's you it's November, November 2. <laughs> yeah. And uh but we 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 were trying to get this out a week ago, but we had some other delays that caused us, but we're finally here. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, as we talk, we always talk for one reason usually, and it has something to do with Iron Maiden. Mm, indeed. But this time, it has to do with what very well may be the number one fan favorite type of episode that come out on Uncle Steve's podcasts somewhere back in time. No. As people just heard, you know, they just heard your son. As we go somewhere (laughs) back in time with my dad, Andrew. Indeed. (laughs) So it's always good to have Georgie here on the uh, intro. And maybe one of these days we can get your wife to do one. It should be like, as we go somewhere back in time with my husband, Andrew. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Possibly. She did do a little thing. She did do a little Queen Elizabeth speech for the um, true uh, episode we did on The Alchemist. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes. and I sang her a birthday song, so maybe she'll return the favor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps. Yeah. So... Let's get to the order of business here. The order of business being, you are going to give us a history lesson <clears throat> concerning Iron Maiden music, which is always fun. It's always fun to hear because I always learn a lot. And I guess the the way we usually do this is you will tell me an album and I have to guess which song off the album we might be doing. So, uh, yes. Let me ask yes, you this. I might, be, I, I might be answering you in a slightly different way this time. Okay. So, it will all become clear. Okay. So, those maybe this question will be irre- irrelevant, but um, <laughs> how many guesses do you think it will take me? One. Okay. Okay. I have a feeling I have an idea of how this is going to go. How about which album is this going to be from, Mr. Andrew? Uh, this is from Dance of Death. Mm. Is this a song that might be written by Adrian Smith? Um, he might have had some involvement. <laughs> um, is this a song about a battle in World War One? Ah, uh, well. Um, perhaps I should answer that with a bit of verse. Go for it. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. No mockeries now for them. No prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mourning. Save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells. And that is an excerpt from the poem Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen. And you might recognize that little passage. (laughs) I think I heard that on Death on the Road. Yes, well, some of us actually heard it in an arena where we went to see it live. Oh, go ahead and rub that in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) 
die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles rapid rattle. No mockeries for them from prayers or bells. Nor any voice of mourning save the choirs. The shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells. So, Andrew, why don't you take us on a journey back to World War I and tell us about the Battle of Passchendaele? Indeed. In a foreign field he lay Lonely soldier, unknown grave On his dying words he prays Tell the world of Passchendaele Well, the first thing I'm going to deal with is the curious spelling that Iron Maiden used for the song. Okay. Because it's not the spelling that's commonly used in English, hmm. which is P-A-S-S-C-H-E-D-A-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-
And in the song, he's lamenting his dog dead comrades and resigned to joining them one day. And in between, dreaming of home. And the song reminds me of, first of all, that that, um, poem by Wilfred Owen is is very, tells the space, the story being in the thick of battle. And there's another poem, which I think in the very first line is uh, referred to, and that poem is The Soldier by Rupert Brooke, and I'll just read a line, a couple of lines from that, which is, if I should die, think only this of me, that there's a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. So when in the first line refers to a foreign field, mm-hmm. I think that's directly taken from from that particular poem. And that poem, um, I think, has inspired those passages in the song where he's, he's, he's home far away uh, from the war, a chance to live again. Mm-hmm. He's inspired by this song because it includes uh, references to his idyllic home life. Like, um, and there's another passage, uh, sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learned of friends and gentleness in hearts of peace under an English heaven. So it's very much a, um, a, a poem that, that of the soldier dreaming of home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I just, I know you get, com- or have been, I think you're getting better at, at the, the difference between England and Britain and the United Kingdom, etc. <laughs> but in this instance, I think the England is, is, is a poetic England. It refers to the whole of Britain, not just of being England or English. Sure. Um, uh, England is occasionally used, certainly in years ago, maybe not so much these days, poetically to mean Britain, right, uh, much like right, Albion. Right. I'll tell you the, the little story. When I, I said the, we're all familiar with the words, well, I have to admit, I didn't, in doing all the research for this, I didn't really listen to the song. Okay. And it struck me yes, as yesterday, as I was um, yesterday afternoon, as I was driving around for work, I thought, oh, I better listen to the song just to just mm-hmm. have that fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I did, and I paid attention to the lyrics, and I thought, oh, there's things I've forgotten. There's things I need to add in. Uh oh. Um, th- things I maybe need to refer to, and, and so I'm just going to go through one or two of those. There's um, reference to never see my friends again and reunited with my dead friends. And I wonder if that's a reference to Powell's battalions. So in the First World War, there was the the regular army, which wasn't very big for the British. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was um, so conscription and and well, volunteering was huge. And then it followed on with conscription. But in the volunteering, um, there was a, a... Italian of uh, um, London stockbrokers that had been successfully recruited, and this inspired the Earl of Derby to raise a battalion of men from Liverpool. Okay. And within two days, 1,500 Liverpudlians had joined the new battalion. And speaking of these men, Lord Derby said, this should be a battalion of pals, a battalion in which friends from the same office, or indeed workplace, um, will fight shoulder to shoulder for the honour of Britain and the credit of Liverpool. Uh, within the next few days, three more battalions were raised in Liverpool, forming um, the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th battalions of the King's Regiment 
brackets Liverpool. Um, and so this just snowball it just went on across the country and, and powell's battalions came from all over the place the so Ooh. men that grew up together um worked together played together fought together and so it was a way of um i think um helping the recruitment from the first place and then the, right. these w- these men would all be well willing to fight for each other it seems like if these soldiers, these guys, you know, they use this as a way to get people to sign up to fight, but mm-hmm. it seems like, okay, you go work at a job and when you mm-hmm. work at your job, you make friends at your job. Yes. And if something happens to somebody you work with, it hurts. Mm-hmm. But if you're going, if you go get a job, with a friend that you've known all your life that's been a bigger part of your life and mm-hmm. something you know tragic happens to somebody like that that's going to be a lot harder to deal with don't you think yeah well it's it's, it's i know what you're saying yeah it, it, it may well be um it's I, I think it was just the idea that this it was a, a way of um getting more men to the front and sure they sure were, they would fight together um, more keenly because they were fighting for their friends rather than just for supposedly king and country. That, yeah, that um, makes sense too. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it sort of makes sense. It, I don't think, I, I can't remember, but I'm not sure if the same thing happened in World War Two. Um, mm-hmm. I'd have to look that up. But, um, yeah, certainly well, it's, it's certainly a, a well-known thing from, um, the first world war. And this was, well, this was a different uh, time too, because world war two happened 20 years later. So people were already mm-hmm. aware of, and God, it seems like it would have been harder to get people to sign up then because they knew probably some of the horrors that had happened in world war one. Indeed. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Uh, uh, recruitment. I think initially at the first world war was, was, um, very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, once it started, it might have got, got oh, less sure. successful. I don't know. Um, I was just going to refer to a couple of other things from the, the song because there's there's a couple of things that that's, that really stood out for me in the lyrics, which was "crucified as on the cro- as if on the cross." Now, and some that rang a very vague bell, so I, I looked that up, and that um, seems to refer to a Canadian soldier. Uh, Sergeant Harry Band, it is believed um, that may and have been crucified by using bayonets against the barn door by the Germans. Hmm. Now, this was reported but never confirmed. Um, there are historians that think it's just a myth. That it just it never happened. It's one of those things that. Uh, uh, a soldier may have imagined he saw, but it, sure. you know, in, the, in the heat of battle, um, or it could be true. But one of the things that um, that, that the Germans after the war um, really disputed any reference to this. There was a, an exhibition that uh, in the early twenties, uh, which included a sculpture of this soldier, and the Germans objected to that being included. And so it was withdrawn. And I don't think it saw light of day till the 1990s. Um, 
so it's it's been a controversial piece, um, but I can't imagine any other reason for using those exact words in the song. And of course, at the time, it was used as a big, massive propaganda uh, sure. piece against against the Germans that we were fighting for the righteous cause against these evil Germans. Um, and uh, and. There's also a reference, I swear I heard the angels cry. And there's a story that uh, at um, Mons in Belgium in 1914, that there was um, the angels of Mons. So it's, it's um, this This is a made-up story, but the, there was this uh, story that really gathered pace that uh, at the battle, angels appeared with longbows and they were meant to be the... the English and Welsh soldiers from 500 years before that were fighting the French in various battles in the Hundred Years' War in a similar sort of area. And they um, they came up and they uh, started to fight alongside their modern comrades. Um, that was, I think, just a, a, a work of fiction that was written and published in the newspaper, but it gathered pace. It really um, it pulled at the heartstrings and, and it was republished again and again and again to the point where it People start to think that this was a this was reported to have actually happened. You tell a lie long enough, and it becomes reality. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. And um, elsewhere in the song, it says it refers to that the process. The actually one of the best parts of the song is that process where the men are getting ready to go over the top. So you know they. I stand my ground for the very last time. Mm-hmm. Gun is ready and I stand in line. Nervous wait for the whistles to blow. When the whistles blew, when the men were ready to go, I thought it was signaled to go over the top of the trench and into no man's land. Mm-hmm. A rush of blood and over we go. And uh, another way the music then just um, pauses for a moment and then bursts into the to the the action of men running towards uh, the enemy and the guns firing, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's that's. I'll leave the song there for the moment. I will come back to that very much later. Okay. Um. Now, first, before I go any further, I want to deal with um, the references. Um, so, uh, in researching this, um, there's an excellent timeline documentary that's available on youtube called simply called passiondale and uh, i used um, uh, particularly in the description of the back of itself i'll be using um, um, uh, excerpts from information gathered from the australian war memorial uh, the canadian encyclopedia and the canadian war museum um, as well as using bits from um, uh, encyclopedia britannica and wikipedia i also referring to a book Catastrophe by Max Hastings, which is all about the First World War. It's a good um, single volume history of the First World War. Um, but mostly I'll be using a book by a gentleman called Nick Lloyd, which is called Passchendaele, A New History. Okay. So I will refer to Catastrophe right now, and I will read um, the opening passage from that book. As Commandant of the British Army's Staff College in 1910, Brigadier General Henry Wilson asserted the likelihood of a European war and argued that Britain's only prudent option was to ally itself with France against the Germans. 
a student ventured to argue, saying that only inconceivable stupidity on the part of statesmen could precipitate a general conflagration. This provoked Wilson's derision. <laughs> ha ha ha! Inconceivable stupidity is just what you're going to get. Hmm. So there is this idea that um, Europe plunged itself into war in 1914. There's, a, I think, a book called Sleepwalkers. There's just um, the, uh, the, the leaders of various countries just collapsed accidentally into war yeah. um, through inconceivable stupidity. <laughs> so when we did the Aces High episode, I, I tried to build a picture I don't think I did it particularly well of the um, of the history of uh, of conflict uh, in Western Europe, particularly between France and Germany, and the background to why Europe went to war twice in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd do a better job this time. no better place to start the story of Passchendaele than to go back to the year AD 840. And Louis, Louis the Pious, son of Charles the Great, known as to history as Charlemagne, he died in 840. And his empire, which covered most of Western continental Europe, was divided between his three sons. It didn't go to the eldest son. It went, it was chopped up between the three of them. The Eastern Kingdom became what was became known as the Holy Roman Empire, which would eventually evolve over the centuries into Germany. The Western Kingdom became France. And the Middle Kingdom, which stretched from the Netherlands in the north through Burgundy and Provence in France, modern-day France, and in, down into northern Italy and down to Rome, became known as Lotharingia. And a name that has come down to us uh, today in the historically disputed French province of Lorraine. Now, of course, there was a resulting war between the three brothers, and that was finally settled in 843 at the Treaty of Verdun. It was the opening shots in a territorial dispute that rumbled down through more than a thousand years for control of this part of Europe. Disputes not finally settled until Germany's defeat in 1945. French colours now fly over the long fought-over lands of Alsace and Lorraine. And in that long, long build-up and all that, those fighting between um, various European states, we've seen the rise of a small kingdom that started life hugging the uh, southern edge of the Baltic Sea, right up um, between what is now modern-day Poland and Lithuania. And that small kingdom was called Prussia. 
Now, there was the Thirty Years' War, which was basically an internal conflict between in, in the Holy Roman Empire, but it was absolutely devastating when, from 1618 to 1648, and it is estimated that between four and a half and eight million people were killed during mm. those wars. Prussia largely, part of Prussia was outside of the Holy Roman Empire, so it, it managed to stay partly out of the wars, so came out of it relatively well off, and through various um, acquiring of, of, of bits of what is now Germany through marriage, etc., um, started to grow. There was the Wars of the Spanish Succession, 1701-1714, Prussia allied itself with Britain, as well as the Dutch and the Austrians, against France. There was the wars of the Austrian succession, 1740 to 1748, where the Prussians allied themselves with the French against the British. Um, And the Seven Years' War, which a lot of historians now refer to as the real First World War, 1756 to 1763, where Britain and Prussia allied themselves together against the French, the Austrians, the Russians, and the Spanish. Now, during this time, Prussia was being built up by Britain. Britain was the big growing empire, and Prussia was this small kingdom, and the British helped the Prussians. They built up their resources, their army, and made Prussia stronger. The French Revolutionary Wars, 1792 to 1802, again, Prussia and the Holy Roman Empire with Britain fought against France, the Dutch, and Spain. And then there's the Napoleonic Wars, 1803 to 1815, where Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which is modern-day Germany, uh, Austria, Prussia, Russia, all fight the French. Now, you might see the running theme between all of those. It's always Britain against the French, the two (laughs) big empires fighting each other through all this time. Anyway... Largely, the Prussians allied themselves with the British, and this may be a, um, partly to do with a, a the religious thing. The Prussians were um, uh, Protestants as well as the British, and against the uh, more Catholic countries in Europe, um, that was a, a partly a consideration. But, of course, France was a very big European power, and the British have always had this idea for many years. British um, foreign policy in Europe was to maintain the balance of power. No one country being top dog. Britain wanted, didn't really want to get involved in Europe, um, as in take territory, but it, it wanted to make sure that no other country was was really powerful in Europe. So when France was getting powerful, it fought the French. When the Spanish before them were getting powerful, it fought the Spanish. And of course, later on, the, when the Germans were getting powerful in the 20th century, Britain fought the Germans. With the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806 through a series of uh, wars, as I say, with um, Prussia rose. And it um, then, in the 1860s, Prussia was becoming the dominant power in Germany. Uh, It defeated Austria and Denmark before the uh, Prussian Chancellor, effectively the Prime Minister of Prussia, Otto von Bismarck, lured France into what became known as the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. With Prussian soldiers on the streets of Paris, Bismarck had the new German Empire declared at the Palace of Versailles near Paris 
on the 18th of January, 1871. And so the French resentment was uh, was born at that moment. Um, I'm going to pull forward a little bit because in the early part of the 20th century, there's this idea that this, this age, which in Britain we refer to as the Edwardian age, was some sort of idyllic age. Um, Europe was at peace. Um, there's a book called 1913, The Year Before the Storm by Florian Illies, and it portrays this idyllic world by taking you to different parts of the world and telling stories about things that were happening in 1913 on the eve of war. And within that book, it does give you the possibility that somewhere in Vienna, in Austria, mm-hmm. two gentlemen may have passed by or sat at neighbouring tables in a, um, a cafe um, walked in the park and nodded to each other as they passed. And those two men that were in the city at the time were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Oh, well, uh, two gentlemen that will become very well known later on in the 20th century. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, also, um, there are three empires, three empires with three emperors, uh, the British, the Russian and the Germans. Uh, Nicholas II of Russia was the emperor, William II of Germany, and George V, king of Great Britain and emperor of India. These three emperors were all grandchildren of Queen Victoria. They were cousins, and it was notable, and you look at a picture of the three of them standing together, how much alike they look. And so can you imagine these three men taking their countries into war against each other. Well, um, two of those countries, at least, were making preparations to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo in, Bel- in Belgium, in, which took place in 1815. So this, the anniversary, the 100th anniversary, was to be a big celebration in 1915. Unfortunately, something got in the way of that. <laughs> So why did Europe end up going to war in 1914? Well, we go to the empire, another empire, that of Austria-Hungary. Now, that was a hickledy-pickledy, a patchwork, a jigsaw puzzle of an empire of different countries and different peoples, different languages, all stitched together um, throughout um, sort of southeastern Europe down the Balkan Peninsula, encompassing modern states such as Croatia and Bosnia. Uh, The emperor since 1867 was Franz Joseph, and he had no male heir as his only son had died in a suicide pact with his mistress in 1889. This meant that the emperor's nephew, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was now heir to the empire, these two men apparently did not like each other. On the 28th of June, 1914, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were visiting the city of Sarajevo in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Now, in the city at the time were a group of, um, some say terrorists, some say freedom fighters. They were um, Bosnian Serbs. Serbo-Croats. Depends on which people. side you're looking at it from. <laughs> Indeed, it certainly does. Um, 
Anyway, Bosnia is this, as we know from the 1990s in the war then, that Bosnia is this mix of different different peoples. Um, and in Sarajevo at the time, of course, it was under the control of the Austrians and the Serbs. were Serbia was a separate country and the two had always been niggling at each other. Yeah. And, of course, the Serbs in Bosnia uh, were against Austrian rule. Anyway, these um, young terrorists or freedom fighters uh, were called Young Bosnia, and they had been armed by a Serbian organization called the Black Hand. Now, on the day of the visit, they had planned, obviously, to cause mischief, and, but they failed to achieve anything. And a member of the gang, Gavrielo Princip, was sitting in a cafe, sort of contemplating his failure, when the Archduke's car took a wrong turn down the narrow street where this cafe was, stopped outside the cafe and tried to reverse. At that moment, Princip stepped out of the cafe, walked up to the car and calmly shot Archduke, the Archduke and the Duchess from pretty much point-blank range. As the Archduke was dying, he turned to his wife and said, Sophie, dear, don't die. Stay alive for our children. Of course, the Austrians reacted strongly. Austria gained support for action in the Balkans from Germany. And that was known at the time as the blank check. Germany said, basically, you can do what you like. We'll support you. While France and Russia were united in their opposition to Austria, tensions rose, and on the 28th of July, Austria declares war on Serbia. Meanwhile, Germany informs the British that they are contemplating a war with France, which would involve invading Belgium, a wish to secure British neutrality. Britain had an agreement with the Belgians that they would protect Belgian sovereignty. And Britain then tried to secure Belgian neutrality from both France and Germany, but to no avail. Russia then mobilizes its army and Germany issues an ultimatum to Russia to stay out of the conflict. On the 1st of August, both German and French forces are mobilized and Germany declares war on Russia. On the 3rd of August, Germany declares war on France and implements something called the Schlieffen Plan, which basically was a plan to invade France through Belgium. It was to sweep around in a big arc, take the channel ports and then fall down upon Paris. Britain, having already promised to defend Belgian neutrality, then declares war on Germany on the 4th of August. Mm. Japan enters on the side of Britain and France and Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, which is largely modern-day Turkey, entered on the side of Germany and Austria, and the world is at war. Um, uh, I will just um, point out, I will use the term Britain and British fairly loosely, now, at the time, Britain and Ireland were 
uh, all one country, the United Kingdom. Ireland hadn't gained independence yet. So when I say Britain, I mean Britain and Ireland. Okay. <clears throat> but I also means the empire as well, because at Passchendaele, there were troops from places such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, Newfoundland, which was separate from Canada at the time, mm-hmm. and Rhodesia, as well as troops from France and Belgium. So it's a little bit of shorthand. Instead of being longhand saying Britain, Ireland, and the Empire, I may well gotcha. just refer to Britain, or indeed just to the <clears throat> Allies, the Allies it largely being on one side, France, Russia, Great Britain. And then on the other side were the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. We live all that he's been through, last communion of his soul. Rust your bullets with his tears, let me tell you about his years. so far <laughs> kind of <laughs> i've got a i have a globe in front of me and as you're talking oh, yes. and naming different countries and i guess because everything's so small in that in, little in crusted Europe, yes. area yeah it's like i'm looking trying to pick everything <laughs> out and i'm at certain points i'm just going eh, let me just pull away and let me and then i stop and I, i'm looking and I, I i lose track so yeah so i'm i'm kind of with you though yeah where we, we, you, you went you you went a thousand years of history or 1,100 yeah, years to get us to this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's quite uh, all right. That's I, quite I all right. All that, I love all that stuff. I oh, yeah, yeah. That. So that's why I'm <clears> into <throat> um, So we're in, now we've plunged ourselves into the First World War. And in the first um, few weeks of war, action took place all over the world. Um, even down here in Melbourne, there were some guns fired um, uh, from uh, Point, Point Nepean. Oh, wow. And a German ship that was trying to leave the bay. Um, there was action in Africa, in the Pacific, and in China, uh, as these the two sides that had these vast empires around the world um, clashed in various parts of these imperial possessions, and, and many were attacked and captured. In Europe, the Schlieffen Plan was in full swing. Um, the Germans invaded Belgium and were heading towards the Channel ports and then hoping to swing down towards Paris. Um, At the first Battle of Marne in France, in the first two weeks of September, the German advance towards Paris was halted and the two sides (laughs) dug in. And that's how they remained pretty much for the next four years of Mm. continuous trench warfare. The front line settled more or less on a line from just west of the Belgian port of Ostend, meaning the port was, um, along with Antwerp and Zeebrugge, were all in German hands. And then it it went southwards. It followed a line that uh, ran past the cities of Ypres, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna say I might make various pronunciations of Ypres or Ypres or even Yeeps because 
I grew up near a town called Rye in Sussex. I've referred to it before. And there's a castle in Rye called Yeeps Castle or Yeeps Tower. Okay. And that's how I always pronounced it. And that's how my grand, I mean, it may just be my grandmother. That's how she pronounced it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the same spelling. Um, you're the teacher. Uh, you're the teacher. You're telling us. <laughs> We're not telling you. You're I'm, telling us. I'm trying to, I, I went on a tri- trip to Belgium with college back in the 1990s. And the, the leader of the, the, the trip calling it e, e pray which always sounded very odd to me yeah but uh, epra seems to be the 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 standard english pronunciation <laughs> okay. and then down past lille in france to near a place called amiens on the river somme in picardy before turning eastwards away from paris uh, towards strasbourg on the river rhine and then turning south again to the swiss border so it's a part sort of a dogleg line, down, then along, then down again. Now, part of Germany's reason for invading through Belgium was to win these channel ports, the ports of Dunkirk, Calais and Boulogne. Um, in October and November 1914, the first battle of Ypres stopped that German advance in the north and created a small bulge around the city of Ypres, which remained in Allied hands. This became known as the Ypres salient. And salient basically means uh, a deviation in the the normal line of the the front line. The salient was this bulge that stuck out into the German lines that was still in Allied hands. And as the two sides settled into their positions, there were some lulls in the fighting during December 1914, as the two belligerents worked out what to do next. The French, British and German soldiers used this period of lulls to cross out of the trenches and fraternise with each other. They exchanged Christmas greetings. And in some places, football matches took place in no man's land on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Gifts were exchanged and they swapped prisoners and even held joint burial ceremonies. So this is quite a well-known event that took place at Christmas 1914, where the two sides came together. And indeed, football matches took place. Um, uh, It's a very well-known event. It's amazing to think about that, really. It is. <laughs> that, that you can be shooting each other one day and then shaking hands the next and, and mm-hmm. playing a game of football against each other. Yeah. Um, but there you go. It's a, it's a strange world sometimes. Yeah, certainly. But uh, news of this disturbed the high command on both sides and they moved quickly to prevent such meetings occurring again. During April and May 1915, the Second Battle of Ypres took place, and it's here that Germany first uses poison gas, chlorine gas, I think, against the enemy, changing the face of warfare forever. Yes. During the spring of 1915, German submarines called U-boats began attacking enemy shipping. Which is this is the reason why the Germans wanted these channel ports to to use those ports to attack um, largely British shipping because Britain by far and away was the largest maritime power of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, however, 
some ships were attacked that perhaps were on reflection the Germans wished they hadn't. On the 7th of May, the RMS Lusitania was sunk, killing, Mm -hmm. amongst others, 128 Americans on board. Mm -hmm. And this is a significant factor in growing support for joining the Allied side in the United States, which they eventually did in 1917 after a number of American ships were attacked by the Germans for supplying the Allies, of course. Mm In January 1916, a major Allied defeat at Gallipoli in Turkey was confirmed with the withdrawal of troops. And in February, the longest war of the longest battle of the war started, uh, which was the Battle of Verdun, which would last until December. And in the end, it was a major French victory. But arguably, the most significant battle of the war took place not on the Western Front or on the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany, but at sea. The Battle of Jutland, 31st of May to the 1st of June 1916, was effectively a stalemate. But uh, it's considered to be a British victory insofar that the Germans needed to have a convincing victory at Jutland in order to have any hope of controlling the seas. Britain had the largest navy in the world. In fact, it was written into British law, I think, that the Royal Navy had to be uh, twice as large as the next two navies put together, I think it was. Hmm. So it had to be huge. So the Germans who had been building dreadnought ships um, throughout the early part of the the 20th century were trying to challenge Royal Navy dominance, and they failed. Um, And this resulted in the Royal Navy being effectively able to blockade Germany for the rest of the war. On the 1st of July 1916, the Battle of the Somme began. Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. It's all right. On the first day, Britain suffered 57,470 casualties, including 19,240 dead. It remains the worst single day in British military history. By its end, in November, there were around one million casualties on all sides. That's terrible. It is. So we arrive through these many battles, often resulting in stalemate, to the summer of 1917 and the build-up to the Third Battle of Ypres, known to us as Passchendaele. Before the official start of the Third Battle of Ypres, there was an important battle just to the south of the city. The Battle of Messines took place between the 7th 14th of June and was a stunning success for the British. Uh, The Vecines Ridge gave the Germans commanding views over British defences on the Ypres salient and capturing this this ground would deny the enemy those vantage points as uh, preparations were made for the main attack. Um, General Hubert Plumer 
was put in charge of uh, the um, the action at Messines. And uh, Plumer was a vast experienced officer who was very popular with the rank and file. He was nicknamed Daddy Plumer due <laughs> to the care he had for his men. Um, and he was a meticulous planner and tactical innovator. Um, he had developed a tactic called bite and hold, which would be used along with what's called a creeping barrage, which had been initially uh, developed by the French. Um, before that, there would be a number of mines dug beneath German lines, packed with tons of explosives mm. to be detonated just before the British advance. Mm. 24 mines were sunk into the ridge and... One was discovered by the Germans and flooded. Um, <clears throat> but the other 23 survived. Hmm. Miner, miners and tunnelers had been specially drafted in to undertake these works. Irish navvies from the London underground, coal miners from Scotland, Wales, and the North Midlands of England were hurriedly shipped over to Flans, Flanders to dig for Kian country. Um, of the 23 remaining mines, 19 were exploded on the morning of the 7th of June, pulverising everything that stood on the ground above, killing, maiming and instantly burying many in the German defences. Sure. Those, those who were spared were stunned and shocked by the massive series of explosions. Today, the site of these mines are often tranquil ponds. That's crazy. Oh, yes, of the four mines left unexploded, one went up during an electrical storm in 1956. Rather shocking, the Belgian farmers. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the other three still sit ominously beneath the Flanders soil. No one exactly sure where they are. Oh, gosh. Fancy sitting on top of that. That's so, creepy. That's creepy. <laughs> how could they not? Oh. How could they not detect that though? I mean, in in the modern age, you think they could some kind of sonar or something that could go look underground and discover where that stuff is? Uh, I'm not sure if you can penetrate. Watching a lot of our archaeological shows, I'm not sure if you can penetrate that deeply because they'd be quite deep down. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah. It would be a matter of um, digging to find out, or maybe just leaving, let sleeping dogs lie. Is right, the best right, policy right, right, right. In this case. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, after the explosion of the mines, there was to be a well termed timed creeping barrage. Now, the artillery, the gun, big guns, would um, shell a line. 700 yards in advance of the troops as they came out of their trenches and moved towards the enemy positions. This barrage would then continue to move forward, keeping the 700-yard distance as both artillery and infantry kept to a well-coordinated combination of time and distance as both barrage and infantry moved forward about 100, year, 100 yards every few minutes. The infantry would then take small chunks of territory and hold these positions. This tactic of bite and hold meant that the advancing troops didn't overstretch themselves and lay themselves vulnerable to enemy counterattacks. Now, this is a tactic that the Germans had 
developed um, through the war. They had a strategy of men falling back from the front line when they felt that an attack was imminent. And then they would use what was called Eingreif divisions to counterattack. And this had proved extremely successful and often led to Allied successes being very short-lived. The attack by the British, Australian, New Zealand and Canadian divisions at Messines was a stunning success and it begs the question, why was Plumer not put in charge of the coming battle? Why was it delayed so much that the British lost the initiative at Messines and indeed lost a good proportion of the excellent summer weather? Laying low in a blood-filled trench Killing down to my veil Death on my face I can feel the falling rain Never see my friends again In the smoke, in the mud and rest Smell the fear and the feeling of death Took me time to go over the wall Rapid fire on the end of my soul Shields and Morgan fire Life's bodies hang on barbed wire Battlefield, nothing but a bloody tomb Been reunited with my dead friends soon Many soldiers, 18 years Turning mud, no more tears Surely a war no one can win Killing time Good God. Did we really send men to fight in that? And they are perhaps the inaccurate but very famous words of a British army officer, the uh, rather fantastically named Sir Lancelot Kiggle, on mm. visiting the battlefield at Passchendaele. Mm, yeah. uh, in the book Passchendaele New History by Nick Lloyd, he says, Passchendaele was the perfect illustration of the myopia of the British high command, a synonym for military failure, a name black-bordered in the records of the British Army. Now, Belgium has long suffered uh, the notoriety of being known as Europe's battlefield. It was created after the Belgian Revolution in 1830 and uh, seceded from the Kingdom of the Netherlands and was formally recognised as an independent kingdom by a 1939. There is a joke that it was created solely for the purpose of keeping the French and Germans apart. <laughs> the English have long had interests in Flanders, the northern Dutch-speaking half of the country, the southern half of Belgium is French-speaking. Now, English interest in Flanders goes back to the Middle Ages. It's cities such as Antwerp and Bruges and uh, Brussels, Ghent and Ypres have been famous trading centres for centuries. Um, in Ypres, there is the magnificent Cloth Hall, and that um, gives a hint as to what that hall was for, the trading cloth. Mm -hmm. um, now, English wool was the finest in Europe and the trade across the channel was wool was taken from England to Flanders and it would be the, the Flanders weavers that would work the wool and sell the cloth and often the cloth would be sold back to the English uh, and it's, that's how 
the, the world turned, how trade turns in the Middle Ages. Um, but this corner of Europe has been fought over for centuries as well. And during Elizabethan times in the late 1500s, the English and Spanish fought through this area. Uh, Spain at the time controlled the Netherlands. Um, armies have swept through the low countries between France and the German states in various European conflicts, as I've earlier um, suggested. And in 1815, the decisive battle of the Napoleonic Wars was fought just southwest of Brussels at a place called Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Waterloo is just 85 miles and 99 years away from war descending on this part of Europe in 1914. And so we come to the Yeeps, uh, Yeeps, <laughs> Yeeps, I can't remember which one to say, Yeeps salient. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to um, try to imagine a clock face. So I'm going to try and explain the geography um, of the area. And the clock is the city of Ypres. The half of the clock we're interested in is between 12 and 6, going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the, uh, the the eastern side of the city, and they're looking out towards the German lines. Now, between about uh, uh, 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock is places like Langemark and Polkapel and Saint-Julien. These are all going to be places that I, I'll probably be referring to. Okay. Down at the <clears throat> down further down between five and six is where the Battle of Messines took place, uh, um, right towards the south of the city. And in the middle, um, there's between three and four. There are places like uh, Hooge and Polygon Wood and the Menin Road. And then between about two and three o'clock is Brudsinder, Zonnebecker, and furthest away. From the clock, Passchendaele. Okay. So salient was where the German advance at the beginning of the war had ground to a halt, stopped in its tracks by the British Expeditionary Force, uh, shorthand BEF. And they had held the ground around the small Flanders city of Ypres. The BEF was about 100,000 strong and highly trained they could shoot up to 23 aimed rounds of rifle fire per minute. They are the inheritors of the famous English and Welsh longbowmen um, of medieval times who were equally prolific and destructive against the French in battles fought in a similar part of Europe 500 years earlier. The German Kaiser called the BEF that contemptible little army. The BEF thus called themselves the Old Contemptibles. But by the summer of 1917, they were largely a spent force. The British Army was now one, volunteers and conscripts. Mm -hmm. The Third Battle of Ypres was fought from the 31st of July to the 10th of November 1917. As Nick Lloyd says in his history, in four months, about half a million men were killed or wounded, maimed, gassed, drowned or buried in this small corner of Belgium. Mm. 
The British commander, Douglas Haig, was concerned that French morale was low. There had been rumours of near mutiny in French ranks on the Western Front, and Haig believed that the weight of the responsibility for the next part of the war should be shouldered by the British. Now, Haig is very well known from the First World War. He was the commander of the BEF, and he led the costly offensive at the Somme in 1916. Um, However, he is credited with successfully defeating Germany in 1918, and he was given a state funeral by Britain in 1928. Um, He founded the Hague Fund, which is now known as the Poppy Appeal, which is a charity active at this time of year in the run-up to Remembrance Day, um, where you wear a poppy and you um, give to the charity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until the 1990s, the poppy had in the middle Hague Fund. Uh, It's now called Poppy Appeal. But he's a very controversial character. We'll come to him several times. (laughs) The British were also very concerned about the success of German U-boat action and in in sinking Allied shipping, which was, as I said, very largely British shipping. Um, The Belgian ports of Zeebrugge and Ostend were being used by the Germans for U-boats, and capturing these ports was seen as vital to protecting British shipping. So a plan was hatched for an assault launched from the Ypres salient with the aim of pushing the Germans back towards the Dutch border. The Netherlands, the Dutch, were neutral by the way, and thus cutting off the ports from the Germans. Haig also was firmly of the belief that the German army was exhausted and on the brink of collapse. A successful breakout attacking Flanders could prove to be the knockout blow. Mm-hmm. In a meeting with the War Cabinet in London, Haig emphasised the exhaustion of the German army and its declining morale. The British Prime Minister at the time, David Lloyd George, expressed anxiety over whether so great an operation would cause heavy casualties. Haig thought there were no grounds for such fears. Hmm. Lloyd George um, could have stopped anything going ahead. He could have pulled the pin on Passchendaele. And he expressed doubts. He has went on later to uh, talk about his his severe doubts about Passchendaele. But in the end, he did nothing. Um, He was the last prime minister from the Liberal Party to lead Britain. Um, But he was significant. He was not only the prime minister that Britain to victory in the First World War, but he was also the Prime Minister that was present at the peace conference uh, at Versailles in 1919, and the conference that chopped up the world and prepared the ground for another war. Mm. Haig went beyond advice from his own intelligence staff, and he had given the definite opinion that if the fighting was kept up at its present intensity for six months, Germany would be at the end of her available manpower. So preparations were now put forward on both sides of the battlefront. German commanders had uh, agreed that a British offensive at 
the Ypres salient was certain. Um, by the 6th of July, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, uh, the German army group commander, was satisfied that he had ample troops and ammunition to meet the expected attack. Uh, Ruprecht was, is an interesting character. He was the heir to the Bavarian throne. He was the last heir to the Bavarian throne before Bavaria abolished the monarchy. And he is a descendant of um, uh, King Ludwig of Bavaria, who built the famous castle in the Bavarian Alps, Schloss Neuschwanstein, which is the fairy tale castle that I think the Disney castle was, was huh. based upon. I highly recommend. Whenever you're in Bavaria, I'd highly recommend you go and have a look at that. I'll, I'll check it out next stunning, time. There. <laughs> <laughs> stunning, stunning castle to go and visit. Um, for an early breakthrough, such as what as Haig intended, surprise would be vital. But much of Haig's preparations were displayed by, for German Germans to observe from their higher positions, and. Um, not only that, but the bombardment of uh, the German lines um, had gave, given them warning that there was something coming. So despite Plumer's stunning success at Messines, a gentleman by the name of uh, General Sir Hubert Goff was put in charge of the offensive at the Ypres salient. Goff was of a similar mind to um, Haig. He believed in a big breakthrough push would be successful uh, an old-fashioned general if you like yeah even though he was the much younger man than plumer um so the attack was launched on the 31st of july after more than three thousand guns had poured four and a half million shells on the german defenses which resulted in the destruction of the delicate flanders drainage system British troops, supported by dozens of tanks and assisted by the French, assaulted German trenches. Only on the left uh, was full objective reached with the capture of Big Shot, Pilkenridge and Saint-Julien. Uh, that was between about one and two o'clock on our, on our clock, <laughs> clock face. Yeah. Um, on the right side, however, it was a failure. Haig, in his report to the war office on, on the first day's fighting, stated that the results were most satisfactory. So the explosion of these millions of shells accompanied by torrential rain that had just begun had turned the battlefield into an apocalyptic expanse, a swampy, pulverised mire dotted with water-filled craters deep enough to drown a man, all made worse by the churned-up graves of soldiers killed in earlier fighting. Yeah. On the 4th of August, Brigadier General John Chartres noted in his diary, every brook is swollen and the ground is a quagmire. It would seem as if providence had declared against us. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers on opposing sides attacked and counter-attacked across this sodden porridge-like mud. Um, a, a landscape that had been was devoid of any building, tree, all had been blasted to bits. There was nothing. Mm. I one one thing I, I try and 
um, post on Twitter would be uh, uh, photographs of Passchendaele Village mm-hmm. before the war and then immediately after the war. And he shows how um, uh, uh, just a whole place can be just completely wiped off the map with all this the shelling because yeah. all there is is just a ghost-like trace of the roads that went through the village. However, through all that fighting, few gains were made. Yeah. The next major eff- effort was uh, called the Battle of Langemark. So there's, there's a series of smaller battles taking place within the larger Battle of Passchendaele. And that had to be postponed due to the weather till the 16th of August and then proved a complete failure. Uh, Goff suggested that the whole attack should be abandoned, but Haig remained confident. On the 21st of August, Haig told the British government that the end of the German reserves was in sight. Through the struggle, though the struggle might be severe, for some weeks to come. By this point, nearly 70,000 men from some of Britain, Britain's best assault divisions had been killed or wounded. The chief of the British Imperial General Staff, Sir William Robert Robinson, began to feel increasing doubts, although he did not disclose them to the War Cabinet, despite his role as the War Cabinet's official military advisor. After a repeated attack by Goff's troops um, had achieved practically nothing, Haig agreed, finally agreed, Plumer should take an large role. General Henry, Henry Rawlinson believed that the British command had never yet attempted to conduct a wearing down battle with planned logical methods that had relied, but had relied too much on its belief that a breakdown of the German army's morale was in sight. And Haig, of course, was not impressed by these views, mm-hmm. but he brought Plumer into the battle and he effectively fulfilled what Rawlinson had said indirectly. So preparations took several weeks and gave the troops on both sides a little respite. Meanwhile, Haig ordered the 100,000-man strong Canadian Corps to launch a diversionary attack on the Germans occupying the French city of Lens, which is in northern France, not actually that far away. Mm-hmm. 
in the hope that this would draw German resources away from the main battle at the Ypres salient. After surveying the German defences, the Canadian commander, Lieutenant General Arthur Curry, opted instead to seize the high ground north of Lons at a place called Hill 70. Now, um, hills that you find this in the First World War, there's lots of Hill 70, Hill 60, etc. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm slightly curious as to why they were called such. And apparently, this is simply how they appeared on the French and Belgian maps, maps at the time. It is simply the the, the spot height in metres above sea level. Okay. So Hill 70 is 70 <clears throat> metres above sea level. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Makes them easier, easily identifiable on the map. Sure. Uh, Curry's operation was an unqualified success, and although the Canadian Corps suffered some 9,000 casualties, the unit had inflicted nearly three times that number on the Germans. Now, Curry was um, from Ontario, and he rose through the ranks from gunner to commander of the Canadian Corps. Uh, and he had an ability to quickly adapt to the trench warfare and uh, the new tactics that he used won admiration from high up. Um, so now we come to the Menin Road, the 20th to the 25th of September and the Battle of Polygon Wood, this 26th of September to the 3rd of October. And this is where the Anzacs, the Australian New Zealand Army Corps, joined the Third Battle of Ypres when they took part in the Battle of Menin Road on the 20th of September. Fortunately for them, there was a change in the weather. It brought better fighting conditions and the advance took them up to the splintered remnants of Polygon Wood, not far from the village of Zonnebecker. German concrete pillboxes often blocked their progress, and many men fell under shell and machine gun fire. However, with heavy artillery support, the objectives were taken and enemy counterattacks held off. The systematic, step-by-step, bite-and-hold advances, uh, staying within range of supporting artillery, pushed the line forward, and they... But it was made at um, heavy cost. In about a week, there were almost 11,000 Australian casualties. Hmm. The Australians then went on and captured Brudsinder Ridge on the 4th of October. And this was a vital victory, said by some to be one of the greatest of the war so far. German dead were everywhere, scattered by heavy shelling torn to pieces inside caved-in pillboxes or cut down by machine gun fire like slaughtered cattle, wrote one witness. But then it began to rain. And five days later, the Australians suffered heavily in further further attacks in the mud. Finally, on the 12th of October, October, another attack was made against the village of Passchendaele, the highest point on the ridge and the furthest point away from the city of Ypres. In the face of heavy fire, the man fought in the mire, was struggling to keep up with the artillery barrage. So this this creeping barrage, the men were trying to keep up with it, but falling back. Mm-hmm. On the same day, an attack on the Bellevue Spur 
became the single worst day in New Zealand's military history. About 3,000 casualties and 850 men dead or dying. Hmm. Ground was taken, but it could not be held. In wretched conditions, with the casualties mounting at an appalling rate, the Anzacs had to fall back. The troops were exhausted and they could do no more. By the 15th of November, they had handed over to the Canadians. Hmm. General Sir John Monash uh, was commander of the Australians, and he's an interesting character as well. He was the son of German Jews who had come to Australia from Prussia and settled in Melbourne. Okay. Uh, he was a civil engineer by trade and highly intelligent. He rose quickly, initially through his university militia, and he became what is, and still today, the most famous of all Australian military leaders. I believe there's a story that he had, when he was knighted by King George V in the field of battle in 1918, I believe he's the last person to be knighted in the field. Hmm. Um, he is remembered today in um, Melbourne with a university named after him, which is appropriate because he went to university, and with a motorway, freeway, um, which again is appropriate because he was a civil engineer. So he probably, everybody knows the name Monash in Melbourne. Um, anyway, he wrote home to his wife saying, our men are being put into the hottest fighting and are being sacrificed in harebrained ventures at Bullecourt and Passchendaele. And there is no one in the war cabinet to lift a voice in protest. So he was an angry man. Mm -hmm. Sure. Now, <clears throat> tell the story of one Australian. Um, there is a phrase, catching a blighty came from the First World War. Blighty is a, a name, an affection name given to Britain. And catching a Blighty means you basically got wounded and sent back to Britain. Okay. Anzac Alexander Burney was an Australian stretcher bearer. And he wrote in a letter home, Here I am, once more in England, lying in peace and comfort, with a bullet hole through my neck. Mm. If it had been an inch closer in, I would now be lying on the bloody Passchendaele Ridge with many other good fellows. 750 men went over the top, and fewer than 50 came back. Mm. Bernie was shot by a sniper, but he continued to do his work, tending to the wounded and listening to the last words of dying comrades with tears in his eyes. It's not the fact that you're dead that counts, he wrote, but how you die. It's worth mentioning the work of stretcher bearers. Um, the average carry of a casualty from the battlefield to the advanced dressing station was over 4,000 yards. That's approximately two and a quarter miles or three and a half kilometers. Each casualty required 16 stretcher bearers, and that's uh, four relay teams of four bearers to get the casualty to that advanced dressing station. Dangerous work indeed. Hmm. 
And so we come to the final assault, to Passchendaele itself. The Canadians arrived in Flanders in mid-October to relieve the Anzacs and were shocked by the terrible battlefield conditions. Curry ordered the construction of new roads, the building or improvement of gun pits and the repair and extension of tram lines, light railways. Um, this might mention for the moment, Roads, when he says building of roads, these roads were probably wooden roads, wooden boards with um, um, edging on either side. So it meant that um, horses, men, carriages could be taken along without sinking into the mud. And the little the boards on either side would stop you sliding off the boards into the mud. Mm-hmm. Because once you're in the mud, that could prove fatal. Yes. Horses and mules transported hundreds and thousands of shells to the front to prepare for the artillery barrage. Um, That would be for the infantry's attack. The Germans on the Passchendaele Ridge fired continuously on these efforts, killing and wounding hundreds. Preparations ready. Curry launched an attack on the 26th of October, the first of four phases in the battle he estimated would cost the Canadians 16,000 killed or wounded. For the next two weeks, the Canadians took turns assaulting the Passchendaele Ridge in four separate attacks. During the first two, on the 26th and 30th of October, Canadian gains measured only a few hundred yards each day, despite heavy losses. So fierce was the fighting that one battalion, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Life Infantry, lost almost all its junior officers only an hour into the assault on the 30th 30th October. Hmm. Under almost continuous rain and shell fire, conditions for the soldiers were horrifying. Troops huddled in shell holes or became lost on the blasted mudscape, not knowing where the front line was that separated the Allies from the German positions. Our feet were in water, over the tops of our boots all the time, wrote mm. Arthur Turner, the infantryman from Alberta. We were given whale oil to rub on our feet. This was to prevent trench foot. To solve it, I took off my boots once, poured half the oil into each foot, and then slid my feet into it. It was a gummy mess, but I didn't get trench foot. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't seem pleasant. It doesn't seem pleasant either way. (laughs) (laughs) The mud gummed up rifle barrels and breaches, making them difficult to fire. It slowed stretcher bearers wading waist deep as they tried to carry wounded away from the fighting. Ironically, the mud also saved lives, cushioning many of the shells that landed, preventing their explosion. The battle for the Passchendaele Ridge Road Turner was without doubt one of the muddiest, bloodiest of the whole war. Hmm. Now, on the 6th of November, the Canadians launched their third attack on the ridge. They succeeded in capturing it and the ruins of Passchendaele Village from the exhausted German defenders. A fourth assault secured the remaining areas of high ground east of the Ypres salient was carried out on the 10th of November, the final day of the more than four-month-long battle.
having captured the ridge, Currier's estimate of 16,000 Canadian dead proved eerily accurate, with 15,654 Canadian fallen. In a letter to the Premier of Ontario, Currier wrote, We were brought to the battlefield and we have taken every single objective from the enemy. I know that no other corps has had the same unbroken series of successes. All this testifies to the fine fighting quality of the Canadians. Hmm. Now, talking of fine fighting quality, um, some 61 Victoria Crosses, which is the British Empire's highest decoration for military valour, were awarded after the fighting at Passchendaele. More Victoria Crosses, 14 in total, were awarded for actions on the opening day of Passchendaele than for actions on any other single day of combat in the First World War. Hmm. One notable VC winner was Captain Noel Chavez. He won two Victoria Crosses in the First World War. He was qualified as a doctor and joined the Royal Army Medical Corps, the RAMC, when the war broke out. His unit of the RAMC was attached to the 10th Battalion of the King's Liverpool Regiment, which fought at the Battle of Hooge near Ypres in 1915. And that's where he won the Military Cross. He won his first VC at the Somme in 1916. The citation read, Altogether, he saved the lives of some 20 badly wounded men, besides the ordinary cases which passed through his hands. His courage and self-sacrifice were beyond praise. He received his VC from King George V in February 1917. In July 1917, Chavez saw action at the Battle of Passchendaele. With his men, he set up an advanced first aid post in a captured German dugout. The Germans shelled this position and Chavez was hit in the head, fracturing his skull. He received treatment for this serious injury, but despite advice to the country, he returned to his first aid post. Further shelling led to two more head injuries. On his orders, stretcher bearers took other wounded men back to relative safety as Chavez believed that he had to stay where he was to support men who were there. On the 2nd of August 1917, Another shell blast resulted in a severe stomach wound, which required treatment at a casualty clearing station. However, the wound was so severe that Chavez died on August the 4th, aged 32. Hmm. The citation for his second VC stated, Those severely wounded early in the action, whilst carrying a wounded soldier to the dressing station, he refused to leave his post, and for two days not only continued to perform his duties, but went out repeatedly under enemy fire to search for and attend to the wounded who were lying out. Mm. During these searches, although practically without food, he assisted to carry a number of badly wounded men over heavy and difficult ground. By his extraordinary energy and inspiring example, he was instrumental in rescuing many who would have otherwise undoubtedly succumbed under the bad weather conditions. That's amazing. Chavez was, it is. He was buried in the military cemetery at Brandhoek in Belgium. 
and his headstone is the only one in the world engraved with two VCs. Hmm. So, That's, the army's on... Yes? That I don't know. Just, just you listen to that and you think... In, in the times that we live in, which are mm-hmm. mostly free of war and free of major conflicts. I mean, there's been mm-hmm. some, obviously, in yours and my life, but but nothing on this. You just think about one guy. You know, I don't yep. know. I'm just thinking about, like, going without food for a day or doing something with, with not enough sleep, you know, going to work on, on a short night of sleep or not enough to eat or mm. not feeling so hot. And this guy was severely wounded. In on a war field, yep. As a as a medical person trying to help people, and regardless of, and probably knowing his fate, shortly coming, mm. was still mm. going out, getting people and bringing them back, and taking care of people. It's just that's that that's an amazing test. That's a to testify of that is amazing. That's yes, that's, it is. That's incredible. It's, it certainly is, yes. And a worthy winner of the Victoria Cross, certainly. Indeed. Um, the armies under British command suffered some 275,000 casualties at Passchendaele, um, a figure that makes mockery of Haig's pledge that it would not commit the country to heavy losses. Mm-hmm. Among these were 38,000 Australians, five. 1,300 New Zealanders and more than 15,500 Canadians. Hmm. That's a lot the of Germans, men. Yes, the Germans, however, suffered 220 killed or wounded. Huh. In the end, the aim of dealing the Germans a knockout blow and capturing the Belgian ports in, uh, which were lying in enemy hands was never realistic. Had Haig adopted Plumer's artillery-heavy creeping barrage and bite-and-hold tactics and gone earlier on the back of the success of Messines and during better weather than the British might have stood a chance. When a century before the Great War, Napoleon said, Ability is of little value without opportunity. I had rather my generals be lucky than able. Um, he might well have been thinking of Haig. Um, Haig was an unlucky general. The weather. Uh, and it's debatable whether um, whether he was able, but he certainly wasn't lucky. Um, his plans for Ypres, as in the Somme, were dealt um a blow by the weather. Um, the August rainfall in Flanders in 1917 was the worst for 75 years. Oh, wow.
Haig failed. He failed to take the advantage when it was in his hands after Messines. He also failed to put his best general in charge of operations right from the start. He then failed to realise the folly of the campaign being fought in such terrible conditions early enough to save many lives from being sacrificed. Sounds like a case of what... When when you've when we've done these stories before, you've told different stories of uh, certain military people. I, I the name, well, you know what? It might be thinking about Hitler a little bit, but just mm-hmm. the arrogance of I know how to make these decisions, and whether or not you've said exactly this, but this is what I hear a little bit is this guy wasn't really willing to listen to the people that were trying to give him better advice against you know his he took his judgment to be superior and yep. it costs i mean well, think think of how many lives it cost indeed he was convinced that they could break the germans absolutely convinced that german morale was was at a all-time low regard and regardless of the evidence against him. indeed yes indeed um in a um, german general staff publication it's written that Germany had brought, been brought near to certain destruction by the Flanders Battle of 1917, so perhaps Haig might have had an element of truth in his belief. Sure. Um, however, in his memoirs of 1938, Prime Minister Lloyd George wrote, Passchendaele was indeed one of the greatest disasters of the war. No soldier of any intelligence now defends this senseless campaign. Mm. He went on, Passchendaele was indeed one of the greatest disasters. Oh, I read that one. Um, so what happened after Passchendaele? Um, there was a spring offensive in 1918. On the 21st of March 1918, General Eric Luden, Dorf launched what we call the German Spring Offensive. It was a series of attacks along the Western Front designed to win the war with one big breakout push before the Americans could fully deploy their troops and resources to the front. After the Russian Revolution of 1917, the um, new Russian government had sought peace terms with Germany, and this meant that Germany could now deploy all the men that had been fighting on the Eastern Front to the Western Front. With all these extra troops and artillery, they thought they could deliver the final blow. The aims of the Spring Offensive were almost a mirror image of what the Allies had tried to do at Passchendaele. It planned to push the British back to the sea, to take the Channel ports and to swing towards Paris. With Britain defeated, France would then seek an armistice. This was the idea. Sure. Although there were some successes, including taking back all of the territory that the British had won at Passchendaele, it came across all the problems the Allies had faced in previous three years, the offensive ground or halt, and was over by July when the US entered the war physically. Yeah. In August 1918, the numerically strengthened Allies launched the Hundred Days Offensive, and this was Haig's big success. With fresh American troops and a demoralized Germany suffocated by years of a Royal Navy 
blockade. Yeah. This time there was only going to be one winner. The Allies won back all the territory lost in the spring offensive and broke through the defensive Hindenburg line. At 5.45am on the 11th of November 1918, the Allied Supreme Commander, Frenchman Ferdinand Foch, signed the armistice terms, which he had largely written, along with Matthias Erzberger on behalf of the new German government after the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm two days earlier. At 11am Paris time on the 11th of November, the guns fell silent and the war was at an end. Mm. So it was Passchendaele a pointless exercise in mass slaughter. Did it achieve anything? That's the debate that has raged ever since. Um, the official history of the First World War was written in several volumes, and the volume that dealt with Passchendaele was the last to be written. Such was its controversy. In fact, it was so delayed that it wasn't published until several years after the end of the Second World War. Hmm. And so the debate over the battle, debate over Hague, has continued. Um, was it a disaster? It was a disaster, certainly in terms of the cost to many lives. Absolutely. Um, but did it actually help? Did it help win the war? Did it um, cause such an impact on the Germans that uh, they were at a point of no return? Yeah. It's, it's a difficult one to answer, but the impression over the years that's come down that Passchendaele was a disaster, as Nick Boyd said, it was um, a demonstration of uh, the short-sightedness of the British command at the time. There is a, a little phrase that the British army are lions led by donkeys. Uh, <laughs> a phrase that actually, I think, comes from the Crimean War yeah. in the 1850s, but it certainly came to the fore in the First World War. So it's for people to make their own minds up.
was the point. Yeah. Was there a point? Did it succeed? The and first world um, war was, a, was not to, not to coin a, to take a song from another Iron Maiden album, but it was a new frontier, really the way you, know, it changed the way you, I think you said earlier, it changed the way wars were fought forever. Yep. Indeed. Yes, it certainly did. Uh, an industrial war. Yeah. Um, and um, yes, this hugely destructive. The city of Ypres, which was blown to bits, and and um, I should mention um, Don McIntyre on Twitter has been posting photographs by uh, Australian photographer Frank Hurley from yes. um, large, largely <clears throat> around um, the Ypres salient. And um, in some of those, you can see the absolute destruction to the city and some yeah, of the yeah. ancient ancient buildings, such as the Cloth Hall and the Cathedral. And these were all rebuilt after the war, um, ex- I think pretty much exactly as they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So when you go there, you can see the beauty of these buildings, and I certainly recommend a visit. <laughs> um but I'm going to draw you back. We'll finish off. I'll draw you back to the last lines of the song. Okay. And I see my spirit on the wind across the lines beyond the hill. Friend and foe will meet again. Those who died at Passchendaele. So this may refer to the Tyne Cot Cemetery, which is near the village of Passchendaele. It's the largest cemetery um, that is controlled by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, who have all the British um, and Commonwealth cemeteries under their control around the world. Mm -hmm. In the centre of the cemetery is the remains of a German pillbox, which pillbox being a small concrete bunker. It was a position that was referred to by the Northumberland Fusiliers who were attacking it as Tyne Cot. Tyne being a river in Northumberland, and the Tyne Cot was a worker's cottage um, that was very common in that part of the world. It was captured on the 4th of October 1970 by the 3rd Australian Division and the New Zealand Division. In the centre, near the former pill block, Pillbox, which is now the site of the cross of sacrifice that stands in the middle of every Commonwealth cemetery, mm-hmm. are the graves of four German soldiers who lie near where they fell in amongst and lying in amongst 12,000 Allied fallen. Hmm. And that is perhaps the reference to friend and foe meeting again. They lie together Interesting. in Tyencott Cemetery. Interesting. And that's where <clears throat> I shall leave it. That's a. Uh, I've read and I listened to a podcast, um, a good you know probably a couple of years ago now, about World War One specifically. It was the one I can't remember what it was called right off the top of my head. But it was the, it was one that Nesbit had referred to. Listening yes, I, to, I think I know the one you're referring to. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I probably have it on my phone, but I I remember listening to it and just hearing the details of, uh, of that battle and the conditions. And it was, it's horrifying. 
Uh, and mm. actually, the t- the podcast was called Dan Carlin's Hardcore yes. History. Hard huh, yep. Hardcore History. Um, and when I go on his podcast, it's some of those older ep- th- those episodes. I don't think they're even on there anymore. I don't mm. know where they disappeared from. It was back in had to be before 2015 because that's the most recent thing that shows up on mm-hmm. his. But I just remember just being blown away at, at the, like you said, the conditions of the battle, the, just the mud, the, the, I don't know the whole, the whole thing just really, I think I lost my point with where I was trying to go there, but yes, <laughs> but, but that was, I wish that was still available because it was a really good listen. It was, mm, I listened yes, to tw- like 24 hours of a podcast. Cause it was, you know, multiple episodes spanning the whole war just to hear about Passchendaele not thinking that, you know, I didn't, because I didn't know the significance. I only knew the song. And mm, when you yes, really sure. hear about it, or I'm sure like reading the books you're talking about, it goes mm. into, it, it, it's mind-blowing to, to, to hear about it, you know, given the way we live now. Indeed, it is. Yeah. And to think it's, it's really not that long ago. Um, yeah, yeah. I know it's over 100 years now, but, um, you know. Uh, we've walked the earth with veterans of the First World War, so it's it's it is very um, yes, confronting in a way that uh, people that we would have talked to would have been there, could have been there. Yeah, very. It's a very uh, very sobering to think about. Mm. Yes. So, uh, I guess on that, Andrew, once again, thank you for a all of the research you do. And taking the time to come on and share it with everybody. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Indeed, indeed. So on that note, cheers. Cheers. (laughs) See my spirit on the wind. Across the lands beyond the hill Friend and foe will meet again Those who died at Passchendaele Marshal Haig has formulated a brilliant new tactical plan to ensure final victory in the field. Ah. Well, this brilliant plan involve us climbing out of our trenches and walking very slowly towards the enemy, sir. <laughs> How could you possibly know that, Blackadder? It's classified information. <laughs> it's the same plan that we used last time, and the 17 times before that. It, it, exactly! And that is what is so brilliant about it. It will catch the watchful Hun totally off guard. Doing precisely what we've done 18 times before is exactly the last thing they'll expect us to do this time. (laughs) There is, however, one small problem. That everyone always gets slaughtered in the first 10 seconds. (laughs) That's right. 
And Field Marshal Haig is worried that this may be depressing the men attached. <laughs> He's looking to find a way to cheer them up. Well, his resignation and suicide would seem the obvious. <laughs> Interesting thought. Make a note of it, darling. The healthy humour of the honest Tommy. <laughs> Don't worry, my boy. If you should falter, remember that Captain Darling and I are behind you. About 35 miles behind you. <laughs> Did you catch what it said there? You say you don't want to run and hide. Just just pay attention real quick. Do you know the name of the band that sings that song? You might recognize that song or at least a little bit of the beat. It usually comes in the form of a little bit of audience participation. Although said in a goofy ex-Australian slash American accent. But either way, the band Wasp had a little bit to do, maybe. One of its descendants had something to do with this episode as it was recorded about six and a half hours ago. Which is about three and a half hours from release as I sit here. As I was recording this episode up in the zone with Lord Andrew. The room I'm sitting in has a chimney, a fireplace in it. I don't know what it's called all around the world, but basically I leave the flume shut, which is the little round circle that, you know, keeps anything, keeps, lets the air out. I usually keep it shut because we have a problem with certain flying insects, 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 yes, winged assassins, if you will, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, if you will, but winged assassins is probably the best term to call a wasp in my book, because for years I was afraid of wasps, and as you will hear, you will hear here, hear, hear, you will hear the way I used to feel about them and the way I feel about them now, but as I was up here, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had to open the flume up, and when it gets a little cooler outside, the winged assassins tend to try to come in a little bit. Not a ton of them, but I've been through that before as well. But two of them came in today, or were in somewhere. As I was up here recording with Andrew, we got interrupted twice. You may notice a little mishmash of... uh tying things together in there a tiny bit in a couple spots, but it was pretty early on. And I was sitting here and Andrew was talking and all of a sudden I see a wasp fly across the room, a winged assassin. And I'm like, Oh, whoa. <laughs> so you, it, I edited myself out. You could hear my chair shifting over and over and over. Cause I was watching and following it around and trying to let Andrew talk. Cause I just thought if it'll land somewhere and you know, I don't have to worry about it, but I don't, it was close enough to me that I was like, I just don't want to get stung because then that would have made for some, Really, it would have made for some comedy gold, but either way, at a certain point, I had to interrupt Andrew, which you'll hear. You will hear here. Hear, hear. And um, 
I have the two pieces edited together. So you'll hear one, it'll end, and then you'll hear the second part as well. But this is just a little bonus treat. I just thought it was funny because, and a warning, if you're squeamish and you don't like to hear the death of a winged assassin, you may want to turn it off now. Or you may want to... Hey, Andrew. Uh, yes. Can you hold on just a second? Um, okay. you, ever, you know what a, a bug called a wasp is? Uh, I certainly am very familiar with wasps. Well, I just had one fly in the room with me. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, we have a, um, a fireplace up here in this mm-hmm. in this upper room for some reason. And that's the way they built it. But there's one. I have the flume open and one flew in here. So, uh, Ooh, blimey. It's probably a few feet away from me, so I'm going to give me just a moment to go kill it, please. <laughs> Did it. Deal with it. You're talking, and I'm just, like, moving all over, trying to, like, I don't want this thing to come sting me. Like, that'll be a bad that'll be a bad interruption if it stings me in the middle of, of this. So <laughs> give me just a moment. I'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> all right. Where are you at? Hold on here. <coughs> mm. Golly. Can I cause any more problems here? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you heard the thud, but I definitely killed it. So I, I, I did hear the thud. <laughs> there's a uh, there's two doors that go to the outside, and there's there's big windows on both of them. So usually if a wasp gets in here, he immediately goes to the door because that's where the light is. Yes. And uh, he was he was just crawling up the side of the door. So I was like, okay, this is easy. Well done. Okay, um, I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to think of what you were saying. No, that's all right. Oh, so I was just, um, well, I... Andrew. Mm-hmm. I just saw another wasp in here. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on one second. I'll be right back. Sorry. Okay. Hold on, Andrew. I... Mm. Crap. You all right? 
going to do this a different way right now, Andrew, because that thing just flew mm-hmm. over near my desk where I sit, and I didn't see exactly where it went. So as Uh-oh. of right now, I'm standing up <laughs> and I'm over here yes. on the side so we can um, – I'm trying to – so we can continue here, and I'm going to stand here mm-hmm. with a. I've got a shoe in my hand, waiting for it. <laughs> oh God, I haven't seen. I've been up here. I haven't seen any of these, and I shut. I just. Oh, 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 I shut the flume a minute ago. My big concern mm-hmm. is that something's going to happen here, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to, yes. I'm going to jump. You know, uh, when I see it, I'm not scared of wasps. Mm-hmm. You know, once I had children, it changed the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I became the aggressor because yes. I'm like, you're not going to get my kids. And mm-hmm. so that definitely changed the way I feel about wasps. And, uh, dang it. I don't know where it went. I, I literally saw it fly and I saw where it started going, but it flew in the, I wonder if it went into the back. Let me just take a look over there and see if I see it. Oh, I just saw it again. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Isn't this what you wanted to do? Wake up early for this? Yes. <laughs> Listen to a bloke chasing wasps around a room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, oh my God, hold on here. It's got to be... Okay. Give me just a moment. I'm going to take this off again and see, because he's got to be over there on that okay. side. So give me just a sec. Okay, there's either more than one or I got it. So I'm going to, you know what, let me let me prop up I'm gonna prop this microphone up a little higher. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up for a while right now because I'm just a little I don't wanna you know. I'm not scared of wasps, I don't I, but I certainly don't want to get stung by one either. <laughs> let me uh I'm trying to stand this thing up as high as I can. Man, that's not that works. Let me try this. I'm stacking, I'm stacking books on top of each other and just trying to get some, oh, here, here's a way to do it. I got a bunch of stuff that I've been cleaning out. And I haven't been stung by a wasp in a good while, so I don't want to start that anymore. I like being able to tell people I kill them. I don't get, they don't get me. I get them. (laughs) So, um, God, I'm sorry. You said, okay, you had talked about the story of the soldier. Yeah, you were saying. Now, I wanted to. I wanted. I want to. One thing I did want to add there, right before I got so rudely interrupted again. Mm-hmm. 